with us, and we do love the butchers, and we're <coughs> glad that they're here. Let's give them a hand. Brother Butcher, come. Take your liberty. Lord bless you. We love you. Bless the Lord, everybody. Why don't we just lift our hands and worship him for a moment. You're glad to be in his presence. Glad to be in the house of the Lord together this morning. Amen. Amen, amen. Bless the Lord. I, we are, my wife and I are very, very blessed to be with you. I would have been more than happy to be sitting where you're sitting and listening to your pastor minister the word, but he would have it another way, and so I believe in doing what I'm asked to do. But we want to honor your pastor and his family, and uh, we love all four generations that we know uh, of the Showstrand family. And uh, there's, there's a wonderful witness there that when we sow good things in our families, those things are passed on. Just like sin has a way of compounding through generations, godliness has a way of compounding through generations. And when your children are able to grow in the house of the Lord and the presence of the Lord and under the teaching of the word of the Lord, it's a powerful thing. And you should never take that for granted. And if you have children... Today, the greatest legacy that you can give them is to raise them in the house of the Lord. And uh, Brother Shostrin, Pastor Shostrin mentioned that my mother is in church and my father is not, but my mum came into Pentecost when I was about seven years of age, and I am incredibly grateful for what she put in me as a young man. And I have no doubt that without that, I wouldn't stand here this morning. And I still think I'm reasonably young, although yesterday when we were with the men, moving some of that equipment, I offered to help, and one of the elders said, I'll get one of the young men to give me a hand. So <laughs> through much prayer and counseling, I've achieved forgiveness for that brother. But uh, I'm 47, in case you're wondering. But uh, I don't feel that I'm that old, but apparently there were stronger, younger people in the team yesterday. But uh, we are so very, very blessed to be here, and my wife will, will uh, minister this evening. I'm sure she'll make some of the same comments, but... Your pastor and his wife have been very, very influential voices in our lives. And uh, if it was up to us, we'd probably move here and live in the bottom floor of the house with, with uh, Papa Don and JJ. And uh, I'm not sure how they'd feel about that, but we would love it. And uh, we've had a wonderful week and a wonderful trip, and this has been a real highlight for us. And uh, we're very, very grateful. Amen. There's nothing like the family of God. Amen. And one of the highlights of my life has been able to, being able to see the family of God in different places around the world. I've been privileged to be in a variety of locations and there's just something about the family of God, whether it's different language, different culture, different styles of worship. I've been to Africa several times and there's no worship that's like African worship. And uh, I go over there and I try to do it, but it just doesn't work. And, uh, but I just love to be with the family of God. And uh, if you have your Bibles this morning, we're going to go to Genesis chapter 4 and share what the Lord's laid on my heart. Uh, I'll move around a little bit. I'll read some scripture and just refer to others and keep the tech people awake up in the box there. The scripture says that we need to give honor to whom honor is due. And uh, that's why we take the time, it's not just tradition, but we take the time to honor your pastor because that's a biblical principle. Yeah. And honor, giving honor to those that lead us is a biblical thing. But, but if we're going to be a part of the kingdom of God, then that means by default that he is our king. 
that worship belongs to him alone. And nothing else can be before him. Exodus 20 and 3 says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. It wasn't enough that he would be the best of the gods, but he was to be the only God. Amen. And even Jesus, when he was tempted by the devil in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 10, responding to the devil said, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God and him only shalt thou serve. God is exclusive. God insists on all the praise and all the worship. He's not interested in sharing. We teach our children to share, but when it comes to our praise and our worship, that belongs to him and to him alone. And I believe that worship is a very important key part of our relationship with him. And you're blessed with a wonderful music team and Sister Showstrand singing and playing. But like almost everything else in the Christian's life, worship doesn't happen in isolation. But it is not only a key part of our relationship with Jesus, but it's also a part of our relationship with one another. In Acts chapter 3 and verse 1, the scripture says that Peter and John went up together into the temple at the hour of prayer being the ninth hour. Hebrews 10 and 25, which many of you could quote, says that we should not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. It's important in the sight of God that we come together to worship him. Church needs to be, there's nothing wrong with going to church because it's a, it's a tradition. But if that's all it is, you're not getting the maximum benefit. There's something about gathering together with brothers and sisters and worshiping together. When you stand next to me and I stand next to you and regardless of the kind of week that you've had, we lift our hands and we lift our voices and we declare that good week, bad week or otherwise, he's still worthy. There is something that happens supernaturally in that environment. Amen. And so with the help of the Lord for just the next little while, I want to teach, preach a little bit of both perhaps about worshiping together. Worshiping together. Genesis chapter 4. Starting at verse 1, says, And Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain, and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And she again bare his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord, and Abel he also brought the firstlings of his flock, and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. But unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth and his countenance fell. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth? And why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. And unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him." And Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and slew him. And the Lord said unto Cain, Where is Abel thy brother? And he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? And he, being the Lord, said, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. This passage of Scripture records an account of two brothers that came to worship God together. And we, we don't have a lot of record of how they knew how to offer sacrifice, but it would be fairly obvious to me that they saw an example in their parents. Yeah. 
in Adam and Eve when they were cast out of the garden, their sons would have seen their parents offer sacrifice unto the Lord and learnt that practice. And we know that one brother and his sacrifice were accepted of the Lord and the other was rejected. And the rejection of Cain and his offering speaks to us of the condition of Cain's heart. Because the Lord would not expect something from Cain that Cain did not understand. So there must have been some level of understanding in Cain of what God required, not just in his action, but also in the condition of the heart in which he demonstrated that action. Cain then has a confrontation with the Lord, which only serves to confirm the condition of his heart. Cain is angry, he's disappointed, he tries to justify himself, and then we're told that Cain is walking with his brother Abel. I wonder what that conversation was like. And as he was perhaps, Abel's feeling blessed. God's accepted his sacrifice. Cain's disgruntled. He's angry. He's maybe complaining to Abel, maybe trying to justify himself, saying, well, I did the best I could, and if God doesn't love me, well, that's too bad. Who knows what that conversation was like, but at some point, as they walked together, the conversation reached a level of intensity where Cain's anger, became rage and boiled over into the murder of his brother. When Cain came to worship with a wrong heart and stood beside his brother at their respective altars, what was supposed to be worshipped together began a downward spiral that ended in murder. This is a tragic story that many of us know and sometimes we miss the underlying warning that is there in the record for us and that is that the offering of praise and worship or sacrifice needs to come, must come from a heart that is repentant and broken before God because if it is offered from a corrupt platform, it will destroy rather than strengthen. It is God's desire to transform our lives. We believe that, amen. We believe that the power of God's word, the power of the spirit of the Lord is transformative. We don't come simply to be improved, we come to be transformed. We come to be changed by the power of God. And so repentance is the beginning of that process. But as most of us understand this morning, it is also required for the ongoing change, the ongoing transformation, the maturity of the child of God. We look back to the Old Testament and we see that on the Day of Atonement, the high priest had to first offer for himself before he offered on behalf of the nation. Why was that? Because the condition of his heart and the condition of his relationship with God was going to have a direct impact on the sacrifice he made on behalf of the people. Amen. Amen. And we can see some of this, the, the, the significance that God places on how we function together. In the book of Psalms, there are two verses, Psalm 41 and verse 9 says, my own familiar friend and whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Right. Psalm 55 verses 12 to 14 says, it was not an enemy. It wasn't somebody that I knew hated me that reproached me or I would have been able to take it. It wasn't somebody that despised me, that magnified himself against me, or I would have just removed myself from that situation. He said, but it was you. It was a man, mine equal, my guide and mine acquaintance. And he said, we took 
sweet counsel together and walked unto the house of God in company or with one another. And it seems most people suggest that the Psalms that David wrote were speaking about a man by the name of Ahithophel who had been David's counsellor and who had betrayed David when his son Absalom rose up in rebellion against his father. But prophetically, those verses look ahead to Judas Iscariot. And Judas completed the fulfillment of those verses when he betrayed the Lord at what we know as the Last Supper. When they sat together in that room eating that meal. But we have to remember, the Last Supper was not just a meal, it was the Passover. It was a time of thanksgiving. It was a time of praise and gratitude for what God had done for his people how he brought them out of the nation of Egypt. And so seated at a meal which was designed to be praise and worship, the Bible says that the, the devil entered into Judas's heart. Because what was supposed to be worship together ended with the betrayal with a kiss Amen. of the king of kings. Amen. For three years, at least three years, Judas had celebrated that time of worship with the Lord. But along the way, Something had got into his heart that had caused him to go through the motions of the Passover, but to betray his Lord and Savior. Amen. We see again, I'm repeating the point, trying to get the, the concept across this morning, that in Acts chapter 4, at the end of the chapter, starting at about verse 32, speaking about the explosive growth in the New Testament church, there was a multitude that believed they were of one heart, they were of one soul, and neither of them was worried about the things they possessed, but it says they had all things in common. It was more than just their material possessions. It was their hearts and their minds were in unity. They just wanted this powerful new experience to be spread and to be shared as much as was possible. And there was a man, it says there was several people that were selling lands and houses and bringing the money and laying it at the apostles' feet. And there was one man whose name was Barnabas, who sold a property. He brought it and laid it at the, the apostles' feet. And everybody was blessed. Everybody was rejoicing. There were great things happening in the church. But then when it transitions into the beginning of chapter 5, we come across the very infamous couple, Ananias and Sapphira, who also sell a possession, who bring a part of the sale price and give it because there was something about the love and the gratitude being displayed to men like Barnabas, they said, I'd like a piece of that. I'd like to feel what he feels when everybody says, well, God bless you, brother. And so they entered into what looked on the outside to be very similar action. You see, Barnabas' love for God found expression in worship that overflowed and blessed his brethren. Ananias and Sapphira demonstrated an artificial love for the brethren that actually exalted themselves. So what could have been, even should have been, worshipped together brought about their own destruction. God was not willing to risk the unity and the power that was in the freshly born church for this couple. And I believe that God will always be gracious and merciful to us. He's always patient and long-suffering, and I'm glad he has been with me. But there can come a point where if I get in the way of what he wants to do in his kingdom, right. he'll move me out of the way. Right. I'm glad there's not a lot of records of the Ananias and Sapphira experience. Because if we're honest, most of us probably earned that at some point in our walk with God. But he's merciful. 
and he's gracious, but he wants us to worship together with a right heart. Amen. Take this concept a little further. Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through to 24. The Lord said, you have heard it's You've heard that it was said by them of old time, referring back to the law of Moses, thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment, and whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, or you're of no value, you're worthless, shall be in danger of the council, but whosoever shall say thou fool shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and you remember that there's a problem between you and your brother, leave your gift there at the altar, go your way, make it right with your brother, and then come and offer your gift. So the instruction that Jesus is giving here is about when you come to worship, remember if there's something going wrong. Because, you see, Jesus is not so much interested in sacrifice in the Old Testament sense at this point, he's about to do away with that. He's about to do away with Old Testament sacrifice. So he's not particularly focused on lambs and and goats and oxen and all that stuff. He's more changing gears into how we come in worship and sacrifice of praise and the attitude of our hearts. And and that's the application. that Otherwise, we could read that and go, well, we don't offer offerings, so that's not applicable to me. But he's transitioning into the New Testament church where it is our hearts that he wants us to lay. It is our lives, Paul tells us in Romans 12. Present your bodies a living sacrifice. And there is a, if you read this passage carefully, there is a deliberate connection made between murder in the Old Testament and corrupt worship in the New. It reaches right back to Cain and Abel, where if you came with your offering and something wasn't right, you needed to fix it. What is the Lord only the Lord is interested in peace amongst his people, I believe that. But he's also interested in the power that can be released into the kingdom of God when we're able to get together when we worship. I'm not just talking about harmony when you sing, but when our hearts and our minds are in one place and in one accord, God is able to release something that he cannot until we get together. Amen. The first epistle of John has a very strong emphasis on the connection between our love for God and our love for our brethren. You read through that epistle, you'll see it repeated, the idea of you can't love God and hate your brother. If you say you do that, you love God but you hate your brother, you're in darkness. That message, that theme is repeated. But there's one particular verse that I want to bring to your attention this morning. That's 1 John chapter 1 and verse 7. It says, but if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The way that verse is put together is worth noticing. It begins with, if we walk in the light, as he is in the light. In other words, I'm doing my best to imitate him, to be like him. And the verse ends with, the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, or the fact that God manifests himself in flesh is the only way that we are cleansed from all sin. But there's a statement in the middle of that verse that connects those two ideas together. 
And that is that we have fellowship one with another. You see, you could take that statement out and the verse would still make sense. You can walk in the light as he is in the light and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. But the writer has put that statement in the middle because the fellowship, one with another, I believe is a part of the cleansing process. I do not believe that we can take away each other's sins. Only the Lord does that. But he uses the body to bring about his will and his purpose. And so if we're doing our best to walk with him, we must also do our best to walk with one another so that the cleansing that God desires will take place in us as individuals and in his body. We know that his blood was shed for us for our sins. Blood operates through the body. So when I work, I walk with him and I walk with you. The cleansing that God desires to bring about is achieved. That's why together is a God thing. The idea of the church or a body of believers existing is important in the sight of God. It's important. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 9, the Apostle Paul said, For we are laborers together with God. We're God's husbandry. We're God's building. Those three words in that verse, laborers together with, it's translated from one Greek word, synergos, which is where we get the English word synergy from. Synergy means that somehow when you combine parts, they produce a result that is greater than the total of them when they're separate. To break that down a little further, if you know the parable of the talents where the Lord said he gave one five and one two and one one, so if, if Pastor Showstrand is the five-talent servant and Brother Showstrand Sr. is the two-talent servant and I'm the one-talent servant, if you add those up, if you can do a little bit of math, you'll find out there's eight talents. But synergy means that somehow when we put them together, that in God's economy, that the way God does math, which is different to the way we do it, it's greater than eight. Amen. There's a principle in the Scripture that he says, if you will labor together, what you are individually becomes greater than the sum of those components. But this, this, God wants us to operate together. As his, that's his plan. That's his design. He wants us to worship together. You ever wonder why the Lord said, it's by this that all men shall know if you are my disciples, if you have love one for another? He could have chosen any method as a sign of being his disciples. He could have said, this will happen to you, that will happen to you, the whatever. But he deliberately chose the visible demonstration of love one for another as the statement that identifies us as his disciples. Why? Because without the Spirit of God, that's impossible. Right. Romans tells us that the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost. Now, I know very few of you personally, but I'm fairly confident that without the Spirit of God, there's some of you that probably wouldn't interact socially. There's some of you that would probably have nothing in common. I know it's only the Spirit of the Lord that enabled us to meet your pastor's family. We live on the other side of the world. We speak with a strange accent. We use different money. We drive on the correct side of the road. <laughs> the left but it's correct that's why I didn't say right it's the correct side of the road 
But the kingdom of God is able to overcome cultures, personalities, social status, education, ethnicity, all of those things. In our congregation in Perth, we have between 15 and 25 different nationalities. And we love one another. We have a few bumps here and there because we're human. But that cannot happen without the power of the Spirit of God. And when people come in out of a society that there is division and hatred and all these things and they see that love of God, it testifies that we worship together and that we are his disciples. When I've, I've got cultures that I don't even know anything about, I make mistakes and offend because I don't know anything about some of those cultures. I have enough trouble not offending the people from my own culture, let alone the other 15 that we have. But that's the kingdom of God. That's, there's a reason that God put out his spirit on the day of Pentecost. It was more than just, well, everybody's in town. It'll be a good way to spread it. It was a statement that said, my kingdom and my spirit, when you're in one place and one accord, all of those nationalities can worship together and see the outpouring and the demonstration of the Holy Ghost. Amen. So if we are laborers together with God, we are able to achieve so much more than just the addition of us as individuals. Amen. Amen. I want to take some time to go over a story that many of you all know very, very well. It's found between Genesis 37 and 44, and I'm not going to read all eight chapters of that because that would be painful. But it's the, it's the story of Joseph and his family. And uh, if you know much of the, the background, you know that Jacob ended up married to two sisters and had a terrible time. One sister he loved, the other sister he was tricked into marrying. So his two wives are competing, trying to see he could have the most kids and I've got the most sons, you've got the most sons. Jacob's living in a terrible place. I imagine that he probably worked a lot of overtime without being paid just to avoid going home <laughs> because his house was a mess. But there was favoritism. There, there were all kinds of dysfunctionalities in that family. And if you know the story, you know that Joseph was the favoured son of Jacob. And Joseph was also a young man that the Lord gave dreams to. And Joseph, whether that was wise or not, shared those dreams with his brothers, basically telling them, I'm going to be the big guy and you're all going to bow down to me. And so they just despised him all the more. And then at a particular time, Joseph's brothers were off looking after the sheep. And Jacob says, I want you to go and see how your brothers are doing. And as he's traveling across the countryside, they see him coming and they say, oh, the dream is coming. And that anger and that, that, that dis detest for this favorite son of their fathers rises up within them because they've spent their lives being second best, being not good enough. And so one of their first reactions is, well, let's kill him. And well, that's it. The older brother Reuben says, no, no, don't do that. that that's a bit extreme. And then Reuben, they put him in a pit in the ground. And if I get some of this wrong, it's because I'm paraphrasing. This is not King James. And when he's in the pit in the ground, some merchants come traveling past. Ishmaelites, I think the Bible calls them. And Judah says, why don't we sell our brother? He says, he's not, there's no profit for us while he's in a hole in the ground. And Judah says, let's sell him, at least benefit from this. And many of you would know that Judah means praise. 
Judah's name means praise, but Judah's heart was corrupt. And it was Judah who said, let's sell our brother. And because of Judah's idea and the others going along with his idea, Joseph is taken down to Egypt, sold to Potiphar, becomes a servant. And if you know the story of Joseph, he, he is promoted, then he's falsely accused and thrown into prison. His life is just up and down. But throughout Joseph's time separated from his family, he maintains his integrity. And if you know the story, you know that eventually Joseph is elevated. He interprets Pharaoh's dreams, tells him there's a famine coming, tells him these are the steps you need to follow to prepare for the famine. Pharaoh establishes him as the prime minister, as the second in command of the whole nation, and he's taking care of business. Then the famine comes, and the famine begins to affect Jacob and all of Joseph's brothers. And Jacob tells his boys, I've heard there's food in Egypt. Go down, buy us some food. So they come down to Egypt, and they're face to face with their little brother. But they don't recognize him. Because like me, Joseph speaks with a strange accent now. He's speaking Egyptian. He's dressed like an Egyptian. He has an Egyptian haircut, and it's been a while. And so they have no idea that this is their brother. But Joseph knows exactly who they are. And if you know the story, you know that Joseph begins to test his brothers, begins to put them through some unusual situations, accuses them of this and accuses them of that, and they're all trying to work out what's going on. It's like this guy is two steps ahead of them every time. And then he eventually he says, okay, you know, is this your whole family? They said, no, there's, we've lost one brother. We've got one baby brother who's still at home with dad. And so he says, I want you to bring your youngest brother back. And to make sure they do, Joseph takes Simeon and puts him in prison and sends them home. They come home. Jacob's like, what happened to Simeon? They explain that, well, it was like this guy knew who we were. It was really weird, Dad. And he says, you know, he said, we can't come back unless we take Benjamin. And he said, I've already lost Joseph. You're not taking Benjamin as well. And so time goes by and the food runs out as it does. And Jacob says to his boys, you need to go back to Egypt. You need to go back again. We need more food. And they said, Dad, that man, that, that strange Egyptian man, he said, we can't come back without Benjamin. And Jacob said, no, not interested. It's not happening. And time goes by. And, and Reuben, the oldest son, goes to his father. And he says, Dad, if I don't bring Benjamin back safely, he said, you can kill my sons. It was very kind of him to offer his boys. He didn't offer himself. He said, yeah, you can have my kids. <laughs> and Jacob says, no, it's not happening. But then there's a really interesting twist in the story because Judah steps forward. Judah steps forward and says to Jacob, I'll be responsible for Benjamin. I'll take responsibility for him. You can hold me accountable. I'll pay whatever price is necessary to pay. And so Jacob, because they're desperate for food, surrenders and says, take him, take some gifts for that man, take some money, get us some more food. And so they come back to Egypt. And many of you know the story, but if you don't, read it. It's in Genesis 37 through to 44. It's a fantastic story. They come back before Joseph, and Joseph sees his baby brother again, and he's moved with emotion, and he invites all the brothers to his house for dinner and somehow manages to seat them all in their birth order around the table. Gives his baby brother, I think it's five times as much food as all the other brothers. 
And the brothers are looking around going, how in the world did he do this? What are the mathematical probabilities of seating all these boys in the right birth order? And all of this is going on and, and Joseph is trying to hold his emotions in check while he continues to test his brothers. And so they get more food, they buy more food and Joseph says, put my silver cup in Benjamin's grain bag and send them on their way. And so they get off down the highway a little and the Egyptian soldiers come thundering behind them and stop them and they say, you've stolen and they say, we haven't. If anybody has, let him be guilty. And they find the silver cup in Benjamin's bag. And they're overwhelmed. They don't know how it happened. They don't have any court of appeal. And they're dragged back before Joseph. And Joseph says, I was good to you. I provided for you. I fed you. This is how you treat me. They have no idea that he set them up, so they don't really have any excuse. And he said, they say, well, we're just your servants. And he says, no, I don't want you all to be my servants. Just leave me Benjamin. Leave me your younger brother, and you can all go home. And then Judah... If you read it, Judah then steps forward again. And he says, if you'll just hear me out. He said, this young man, if we don't bring him home, it'll break our father's heart. And our father will die from the agony. And he says, let him go and let me be your slave. The brother that had sold him is now willing to sell himself to preserve his younger brother. Somewhere along the way, Judah's heart has changed. And because of his love for his father, he's willing to suffer for his brother. And in the change of Judah's heart, when praise goes from being corrupt to being pure, you see a brother who was lost restored to his father. Because the next question that Joseph asks is, does my father yet live? Is dad still alive? Stand with me if you would this morning. I know this is maybe a little bit of a different message. But when praise and worship, not just noise or physical expression, but when praise and worship come from a right heart, and a right spirit toward the Father, brethren can be restored. People who are in captivity can be set free. That's why it's not just about singing nicely or clapping our hands, but when we live with an attitude of worship, we say, I want to worship together as a part of the family of God. There's a witness, there's a power, there is deliverance that you can see people restored to the Lord when your worship is with the Lord. You're willing to put yourself in someone else's place. When you're willing to say, Lord, I'll take whatever it is, just restore that brother. When Judah finally said, I love my dad too much. I can't allow my father to suffer that pain. Let me endure the suffering. And you read that wonderful story of how Joseph loads up the wagons and the high speed down the highway and he hugs his father and scripture says they, I think it says they basically weep till they don't have the ability to weep anymore because the son that was lost 
is restored to the father who thought he was gone forever because somebody wanted to worship with the right spirit. We need to understand the power that we have when we worship God. When we come, we say, God, one heart, one mind, one accord, one place. Set the captives free, Lord. I wonder if you'd lift your hands this morning for just a moment. I wonder if I could challenge you to say, God, search me. I want to worship together. I know I want to worship you as an individual, but Lord, this is not just about me. This is about your family. This is about your kingdom. This is about brothers and sisters being set free, being delivered, being restored to their heavenly Father. Lord God, you're able to do the impossible, Lord, if we would have a right heart and a right spirit, Lord, we'll see your power demonstrated in our midst this morning. We worship you, Lord Jesus. We worship you, Lord Jesus. I wonder if you'd like to make a commitment this morning. Say, God, I want to be a part of that. I want to be a part of it. Help me not just to be thinking about me, but Lord, to be looking left and right and to worshiping. If you want to step forward this morning, just lift your hands and say, God, I want to be a worshiper. But together, your family, Lord God, your people, let them see something in us that testifies to the power of your spirit. God, that will release those that are bound, that love that is genuine, that is pure, that will sacrifice itself for the goodness of others. Hallelujah. We worship you, Lord Jesus. We worship you, Lord Jesus.